Kent Garrett. Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. Our guest is Richard Collenberg. He is a professorial lecturer of public policy and administration at George Washington University. He graduated magna cum laude from Harvard College in 1985 and cum laude from Harvard Law School in 1989. In 1997, he wrote a book titled The Remedy, Class, Race, and Affirmative Action. On March 29th, the New York Times published an article about Richard Collenberg titled The Liberal Maverick Fighting Race-Based Affirmative Action. I'm joined by 21 of my Harvard classmates. Alden. Uh, born in Mass General, grew up in Northwestern Connecticut, lived in Aiken, South Carolina for three years, to Washington, D.C. for three years in Northeast, so not very far from you. Uh, then Flint, Michigan, Chicago, and now the Bay Area. And my wife and I have a fundraising consulting firm for nonprofits. Okay. Jerry Sekundi. Uh, Jerry Sekundi. I live in Pasadena, California, grew up in Washington, D.C., and an environmental lawyer, a strong fan of affirmative action, and I would have qualified because I was both a minority and damn poor. So either way. <laughs> Richard Rothstein. Uh, also 63. Um, uh, I um, retired to Cape Cod, I thought, 20 years ago. And then my kids absconded with the grandchildren to California. So here we are, um, reluctant Californians looking forward to the summer to go back to the Cape. Okay, good. Bill. Bill Collins, presently in Aiken, South Carolina, been here about 30 years. But I grew up in the Boston area, went to Harvard, class of 63, then in the Navy for 20 years, then Westinghouse Electric for a while, and then Savannah Riverside, which brought me to Aiken. I've been here, not I'm now retired, living here with my wife of 52 years, I guess. 51, yeah, 51 years. Getting okay. ahead of Great. Ronnie Bob. I'll mention we lived in Germantown briefly, Maryland. Oh, okay. <laughs> Ronnie Bob. Ron Blau, Ron Blau, class of 63, worked in TV and video most of my life, still doing some of that. Uh, some climate work as a volunteer. And the big news of the week is that my daughter got engaged to a really wonderful guy. So, oh, well, hey, well, hey, hey, all right. right. David McGregor. David McGregor, 63, living in Queens, New York, worked in architecture and city government. And I guess my big news is a recent fifth grandson. Oh, <laughs> great, great. And Nick. Nick Bancroft, uh, living outside of Boston, Medfield, Mass., uh, class of 63, Harvard Business School, uh, Peace Corps in India, working with cast iron foundries, machine shops back to Boston, um, investments and wills and trusts. Okay, Jeff. Hi, uh, Jeff Fox, born in Chicago. Um, after Harvard, uh, long career uh, working and teaching about uh, Latin America as a sociologist, and finally decided that the best way to do sociology was to try to enter people's lives through fiction. So I'm writing fiction now, okay. living in so Southeastern Spain. Hey, George. George Jones, again, class of 63, 
currently living in Ann Arbor, Michigan, or right now I'm in the house in which I grew up in Muskogee, Oklahoma. Huh. And as I mentioned earlier, unfortunately, I think I'm going to have to sell this house, despite the fact that it will pain me greatly to do so. And my wife and I, my wife Vivian and I, just celebrated our first wedding anniversary. Oh, your first. <laughs> hey, hey, hey. And uh, Doug. Uh, hi, I'm Doug Shapiro, uh, living in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, I grew up in Houston, Texas. And when I first arrived on campus uh, uh, in Cambridge uh, and told people that I was from Texas, I discovered that they had absolutely no idea what life in Texas was like. And so I invented this cockamamie st story about having a, a sheriff or a father who went around swaggering with the uh, two six guns on his hips, and my astonishment, people believed it. <laughs> okay. uh, Peter. Right, and now that story about Texas is true. <laughs> so, so I'm an editor and writer. I live up in the northern tip of New Hampshire. I was in Leverett House. That's where I met Jeff Fox, who was a type of guy <laughs> yeah. who liked to liven up the place, and he directed plays. So I was in. A, I was once in a play, a Bertolt Brecht play, directed by Jeff. <clears throat> yeah, right. I remember. Yes, <laughs> great fun. Uh, after Harvard, I after Harvard, I worked with SNCC down in Georgia. Okay, David Othmer. Born in Medford, Mass., grew up in Central and South America, uh, <clears throat> went to the business school after Harvard College and spent most of my career in public broadcasting, first for WNET in New York and most recently for WHYY in Philadelphia, where Maureen and I live. Okay, Hamp. Yeah, Hamp Howell. Uh, from New York, Boston, and Harvard, 63. And then I uh, went to the South in uh, Nashville by way of Puerto Rico and um, <laughs> Brazil. Wow, <laughs> a long detour. Yeah, right. Uh, uh, I was a squash player at uh, Harvard, and uh, I'm a clinical psychologist today. All right, so uh, welcome, uh, Professor. Thank you for joining us. And let's uh, tell us about the article and about your book. Well, thank you. And, and thank you for, for having me on. It's great to meet all of you. Uh, Richard and I know each other going back many years, but uh, all the rest of you are, are new to me. And I'm, uh, I just I love the concept of this, this podcast and the fact that you're all getting together periodically. Uh, my class doesn't do that, so um, so uh, and uh, let me let me just I guess the the riddle I want to try to solve is uh, why a why a good liberal like me would get involved in challenging uh, the use of race at at Harvard, and um, it's a it's it's something I've had to explain to a lot of my good friends and. They, I don't know that I've convinced them, but I'll, I'll try today to at least give my, my uh, explanation. So uh, Kent mentioned the New York Times did a, uh, did a profile about me recently, um, calling me a, a liberal maverick, uh, and um, noting that 
I was an expert witness in the litigation uh, that uh, is challenging uh, racial preferences at, at Harvard and uh, at the University of North Carolina. And you all probably have been following this. And the Supreme Court heard the case in October and now will likely issue an, an opinion soon. Uh, and, and the bottom line for me is I think that a, a conservative US Supreme Court decision on race uh, will yield a, a variety of liberal uh, public policy results. Uh, and I base that on experiences in states where uh, race uh, has no longer been, uh, is no longer used. Uh, universities didn't just give up on diversity. They found new and in my view, better ways to, to achieve both economic and racial diversity. So, uh, so let me just, I guess there are, there are four big points I wanna to try to make. Uh, the first is, I think the evidence is clear that race and class both independently matter uh, in American society. They both present obstacles to opportunity. And we, we wanna to try to find a way to get, get both uh, racial and economic uh, diversity. But at the same time, the relative importance of the two has shifted over time. Uh, race was more significant uh, for the class of 63 than it is for uh, the class or the relative balance between race and class has shifted so that class is more important today, uh, race less significant, I think the data suggests. Uh, second is to talk a little bit about why college, you know, what colleges do now in terms of admissions. Uh, I heard we've got a, we've got a squash player on, on board and, you know, that's one of the things they look at, uh, obviously athletics, a variety of factors. So I want to talk about that. Uh, third, to talk about vulnerability of uh, racial uh, affirmative action programs, both in terms of political opinion and, and the uh, Supreme Court. And then finally, kind of what comes next after, if, uh, as most people expect, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, significantly curtails or even strikes down the ability to use race. Um, so that first point, you know, the big trend over time is that uh, racial, you know, if you look over the last century, uh, racial equality has risen. Uh, and then over the last century, according to Robert Putnam, you know, economic equality rose and then it declined significantly. Uh, so we see those two trends in uh, manifest themselves in terms of academic achievement. Uh, 50 or 60 years ago, the achievement gap uh, the academic achievement gap between black and white students was about twice as large as the achievement gap between rich and poor students. Uh, and today, precisely the opposite is true. Uh, the, the achievement gap between rich and poor is twice as big as the achievement gap between black and white students. That's according to a researcher, Sean Reardon at Stanford. And and th those are results, but I think they underline that are enormous uh, <clears throat> inequalities of opportunity that help explain, uh, explain those, those achievement gaps. Uh, so second point, you know, what, what do colleges actually count in admissions? Uh, and William Bowen, who was former president of Princeton, did a study several years ago that looked at uh, all the different factors that count in admissions. And uh, at the 
at the oral argument in the Supreme Court, University of North Carolina said, we count 40 different factors and, and I don't doubt them, but there's some that count a lot more than other ones. Uh, so the biggest preference uh, provided is for recruited athletes. Uh, you get essentially a 30 percentage point increase in your chances of admission. So if you had a, you know, 20% chance of admissions based on your academic record, your leadership, and all the other things. Uh, if you're a recruited athlete, that jumps to a 50% chance of admissions. Second biggest is for uh, underrepresented minorities, so Black and Hispanic students, uh, Native American students, and they get about a 28 percentage point boost in admissions. Uh, next comes legacies, uh, an issue of great interest. Uh, to a lot of us. And uh, there you see a 20 percentage point boost in admissions. Now, Harvard and every other elite university will say, of course we consider the economic obstacles that students have overcome. We wanna reward students who haven't had opportunities, have overcome those obstacles because they're enormously impressive. Uh, Bowen's research suggests the consideration of economic status is Tiny. Uh, so a four percentage point increase for first generation students. If you're in the bottom income uh, quartile, uh, you you get no benefit whatsoever in terms of admissions. So that's what happens. That's what happens today. And uh, the Bowen study is a little bit old, uh, and universities are very opaque about their admissions processes. But one of the good things about the litigation is that we could tell. What counts at Harvard and what counts at, at University of North Carolina? Uh, and at Harvard, uh, the data pretty much followed what Bowen had found among a study of, I think there were 13 elite universities in that study. So recruited athletes get the biggest boost in admissions, then African-Americans, then legacy students, uh, then the children of faculty, another form of affirmative action that in my view is a little bit like legacy of giving an advantage to an already advantaged group. Uh, next comes Hispanic students. Then you get a bump up if you apply early. That's the next most significant. Uh, and then way down the list is if you're socioeconomically disadvantaged, you do get a modest boost, but much smaller than all those other, all those other preferences. And we ran the same numbers at the University of North Carolina basically the same results. Uh, now you have to ask, why is it that universities are putting such a priority on racial diversity over class diversity? Why does it matter to them so much more? And I think there are three things going on. One is that uh, colleges are less accountable for a lack of, of socioeconomic diversity because it's not visible to people. You know, you can, you can look around a room and you can have a good sense of whether a, an institution is failing in terms of racial diversity. In terms of class diversity, it is, it is much less visible. Now, I've been spending several years trying to raise the visibility, you know, citing statistics, uh, but in terms of the, the naked eye, you can see racial diversity, you can't see class diversity uh, in the same way. Secondly, there are fewer organized groups that are pushing for economically disadvantaged students. So there are groups, civil rights groups, uh, faculty and others who are pushing for racial diversity. I'm glad that they are doing that. There are not comparable groups uh, who are pushing for, for socioeconomic diversity with the same determination. 
And then the final point, which is, I think, the big reason, the biggest reason, is that socioeconomic diversity is far more expensive to achieve than racial diversity. So if you admit uh, greater numbers of economically disadvantaged students, obviously you need to provide them with financial aid. Uh, and that is not true when you recruit upper middle class students of, of, of all races. And that's what we tend to see. Uh, so, so Harvard is now majority minority, which I think is a beautiful thing. You know, whites are a minority at Harvard. That's great progress. Uh, at the same time, research from Raj Chetty says that there are 22 times as many rich students as low-income students. Yeah. Racially diverse, socioeconomically, <sighs> uh, not so much. Uh, now, some will say, well, doesn't affirmative action based on race bring you economic diversity? Uh, not at a place like Harvard. So the research in the litigation found that 71% of the uh, underrepresented minority students were from the top uh, one-fifth of their racial groups. So the top one-fifth of Black, yeah. top one-fifth of Hispanic, and top one-fifth of Native American populations. Um, so that's who's, who Harvard is, is targeting right, right now. When you say top one-fifth, is that financially? Financially, yeah, in terms of socioeconomic status, yep. Um, so if the uh, if first-generation students were as underrepresented, uh, or if Black students were as underrepresented as first-generation students, you know, people for whom their parents don't have a four-year degree, uh, then you would see the Black population at 2%, uh, which I think is probably what it was for the class of 63, a very small number uh, compared to what it is today, which is, is you know, 15%. University of North Carolina is the same way. They, they claim to be the people's university. They've got 16 times as many rich students as, as poor students. Uh, okay, third point has to do with kind of the vulnerability of, of race-based affirmative action. Uh, in terms of public opinion, very weak support for considering race. Uh, at the, you know, the Pew Research Center, not a right-wing group, ask people what should count in admissions. And 74% of Americans said race should not be even a minor factor in admissions. Uh, now at one level, I think that's a, um, a sign of progress in our society. The, the idea that race uh, should not determine someone's fate is, um, you know, is, a, is a relatively new concept. If you went back to the 1940s, as, as you well know, there would be a lot of white people who said, yes, race should count in favor of white people. And now we have a broad societal consensus that race shouldn't count. And that is part of why race-based affirmative action runs into, into trouble. Uh, and then the other big issue, of course, is the looming Supreme Court decision where I was, I was there at the oral argument. It was uh, not clear to me that there was any path forward for for race-based affirmative action from, from the questions uh, by the justices. You never know. We'll, we'll have to see what happens uh, probably in late June, but uh, it looks like the Supreme Court will, will strike down the use of race. Uh, okay, final point I wanna make is, is um, you know, what's the future of affirmative action look like? What will happen if 
uh, if the Supreme Court does strike down the use of race. And in the 1990s, when I began researching this issue, that was an open question. You didn't know what would happen. Um, you know, maybe universities would just say, listen, if we can't use race in admissions, we're not gonna, we're not gonna prioritize diversity anymore. That did not happen. So there are uh, 10 states where, uh, or nine states where race has been banned, um, oftentimes by a public uh, you know, initiative process where voters said at public universities, race shouldn't be affected. And in virtually all of those cases, uh, governors, sometimes Republican governors, uh, and legislators came together and said, we need to create alternatives to produce racial diversity indirectly. And they often did so by looking at socioeconomic status. So a number of universities formed new partnerships with disadvantaged high schools to increase the pipeline for uh, racial diversity. Uh, there were eight states that adopted uh, class-based affirmative action programs, what I've been talking about, giving a leg up to economically disadvantaged students of all races. Uh, eight states where they expanded financial aid budgets. Uh, in three states, they got individual universities got rid of legacy preferences. So I think that may happen uh, if the Supreme Court strikes down the use of race. Uh, in three states, like in Texas and California, they, they gave an advantage in admissions for people who were in the top of their high school class irrespective of their you know, SATs or, or grades. Uh, and then some, some uh, institutions began taking more recruits from community colleges as a way of uh, you know, bringing in talented community college students who uh, often are more economically uh, disadvantaged and much more likely to be uh, students of color. Uh, now, how did this work? Uh, there, in 2012, uh, I worked with another colleague on a study which found that at seven of the 10 leading universities, uh, these use of alternatives created as much black and as much Hispanic representation as using race had in the past. Now there were, there were three outliers and they're the ones you may have heard about, uh, University of California, Berkeley, UCLA, uh, and the University of Michigan. And, uh, you know, it took them it took them longer, but in the most recent couple of classes, uh, UCLA has now reached its uh, the level of black and Hispanic representation that they had uh, using race in the past, and and UC Berkeley is uh, has the Hispanic representation. They're still lagging a little bit on the on the black representation. So the big picture is in the vast majority of cases. Uh, they were able to achieve racial diversity. Now, when I testified in the trial on these cases, I said that at Harvard and the University of North Carolina, they can use class-based alternatives to get racial diversity, but that if a university couldn't get racial diversity, then I would favor the use of race in admissions. And that's something that kind of has gotten lost in some of the discussions. But uh, if they try everything, if they try using uh, all these various methods still can't get racial diversity, then I would support using race as, as a last resort. Um, so we saw at uh, University of Texas at Austin, big increases in socioeconomic diversity, uh, as you would expect. Uh, we ran some simulations of what would happen at Harvard. Uh, you would see uh, essentially white admissions would go down, probably because of the 
elimination of legacy preferences. Hispanic admissions would go up. Asian admissions would go up. Uh, socioeconomic diversity would increase uh, with a, with a class-based preference. Uh, so in most respects, Harvard becomes more diverse uh, with respect to when they, when they implement race-neutral alternatives. Now, the one exception, and it's a troubling one, uh, was among black students. And there in the simulation, you saw the representation of black students fall from 14% under the status quo to 10% uh, in, the, um, in the simulation. And the important thing to know there is that in the simulation, we did not have access to data about wealth. Uh, and oh. you know, Richard, you've written about this issue a lot, others have as well. There's an income gap in this country between black and white people that's disturbing. There's a gargantuan wealth uh, differential between black and white people. And it's fair to consider a fam family wealth in deciding who gets in, because if you come from a low wealth family and you've done well, despite the odds, uh, that should count in your favor in admissions, coming from a low wealth family. Uh, if you added in wealth as a factor in admissions, uh, then the research suggests you would get more racial sure. diversity than, than that simulation uh, at, at Harvard, Harvard suggested. So, uh, so I'll end there. And the, the bottom line is, I think that uh, you know, universities will, will adjust to a negative decision on the use of race. I think they will come up with uh, alternatives that will command broader public support, uh, broader legal support, and, um, and end up diversifying colleges in brand new ways. If you think about it, there've been kind of three waves, but we had a affirmative action uh, for underrepresented minority students that enriched the university environment. Uh, you know, places like Harvard went co-ed and there was uh, greater gender diversity as a, as a second wave. Uh, and I think this decision will ironically usher in a third wave where low-income and working-class people of all races who've basically been shut out of elite institutions will, uh, will have greater access and that, that universities will be, will be better because of it. Hey, Hemp. Yeah. Uh, I'm just wondering about uh, Asian, Asian people and Jewish people, uh, both of whom have been... Uh, treated with 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 some questionable fairness and 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 how that fits in with 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 these formulations yes well uh there was was evidence presented at trial that uh in in the case of harvard not in the case of the university of north carolina in the case of harvard that essentially there's an asian penalty in the admissions process and we knew that of course, to be true with respect to Jews uh, earlier in, uh, you know, in Harvard's history, where they, they had an informal quota, they started inventing these you know, <clears throat> opaque uh, admissions criteria having to do with uh, character and, uh, and legacy preferences were in part motivated as a way of capping Jewish students. So 
Um, so that's one of the, the kind of the unseemly undersides of the Harvard admissions case that, that came out. And you saw that, you saw that with, uh, for those of you who followed it closely, you know, Harvard has this score that looks at um, personal attributes, uh, integrity and, um, and, and grit and a number of other factors. And routinely, Asian American students were uh, rated more poorly on those factors. I don't think there's any evidence to suggest that Asian American students uh, are in fact lacking those qualities. It looked much more like an right. effort to uh, make sure that there was racial balance in the, in the school. So under our simulation, if you, use, if you can't use race in admissions and instead do a number of uh, positive things for economically disadvantaged students, the Asian uh, percentages go, go up compared to the current, current system. We didn't have data on, on Jews specifically, um, so I don't know how that, how that would pan out. Doug. Yeah. Um, how, where do the traditionally uh, African-American colleges and universities fall into uh, this whole consideration? I mean, obviously, you know, they probably in the past placed great emphasis on uh, what you describe as race, but really color, I guess, in, in their admissions uh, policies. Um, are they going to be affected? I don't know that they'll be affected directly. Uh, so the, uh, you know, the, what's being challenged is instances when college, selected colleges are using race in the favor of underrepresented minorities. And uh, you know, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know of evidence that suggests that uh, you know, historically black colleges have been doing that. I just think, uh, that there are a variety of reasons in a society that's got a lot of uh, racial challenges. Uh, it's I think it's completely understandable that some students would would choose to go in an environment where they can feel affirmed. Uh, but I don't think uh, historically black colleges will be will be negatively affected in any way. George. So I've got a lot of thoughts about all of this, but I'm not going to try to monopolize the conversation at this point. So let, let me just ask a question. So you mentioned a number of universities that apparently have successfully substituted class for race to achieve a diverse student population. But in the absence of a legally useful and, 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 and viable affirmative action system, there, there are a, a, a whole lot more than, I mean, they're, they're, the number of universities you mentioned is a small fraction of the total. What's gonna, what will be the incentive, for example, for the University of Mississippi to admit black students in the absence of a, of a legally binding affirmative action system? So I think the pressure will be political. Uh, so I, I had mentioned that the American public does not want race used in admissions. That's the one half. The other half is, you know, to their credit, Americans would like to see racially diverse student bodies. Uh, and so when you saw 
race eliminated from admissions in various states, including you know, red states like Texas and Florida. There was strong political pressure uh, that Repo Republican governors listened to, to come up with an alternative uh, to achieve racial diversity. So, so the, the, the duality here is that people don't like race considered in admissions. They also don't wanna see resegregation of higher education. Don't. To their credit, they don't wanna see that. And so uh, that's where the political pressure comes in. And, and that's why I think it's important and significant that in places where race could no longer be used, you saw a flurry of activity uh, by university officials and by state governments to support creating new alternatives. Um, it is true that uh, the Supreme Court is likely to just say, you know, you can't use race. They're not going to require anyone to use class and admissions. But my read of the evidence is that the political system will put pressure on universities to come up with new ways to get racial diversity uh, and that the Supreme Court will be striking down one particular means for achieving racial diversity, but not, not, uh, you're not going to prevent universities from finding other means that, uh, to achieve that, that racial diversity. Well, I hope I'm wrong, but I don't believe that for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, no, I listen, in 1996, when I was researching this issue and the question came up, you know, if I were a voter in California, would I have voted to eliminate the use of race? And my answer would have been no, because we don't know what colleges are gonna do. You know, I, I think it's important to have racial diversity on campus. I think there are, you know, better ways to get there than the current system. Uh, but if, but there was of course a risk that universities just would say, okay, well, you know, the voters have ruled and therefore we're not going to care about racial diversity anymore. That hasn't happened. And at selective colleges, it is it is baked into the DNA uh, at most colleges, not all, uh, that in order to have an excellent education, you want to have racial diversity on campus. Jerry. Well, I, <clears throat> excuse me, I hope your last statement is true. I somewhat... Uh... I'll remain a little bit cynical on that. We'll see. I'm just curious, Rick, on one thing, which is, is there any pushback in terms of using the social economic criteria for admissions? Are, are any of the wealthy donors saying, hey, why should I be discriminated against? Yeah. Uh, yes, uh, there will be people who are upset at the idea of shifting to a class-based preference. Uh, <clears throat> More broadly, the public opinion polling suggests that while Americans are, are mostly opposed to using race, about two thirds favor using socioeconomic status. Uh, now public opinion doesn't dictate what colleges do uh, by itself, but there's gonna be, uh, there's gonna be support for, uh, for making sure that colleges find new ways to get racial diversity. And if wealthy donors are seen as an impediment to creating racial diversity, uh, which an insistence on, you know, not counting class would, would effectively mean, I think they will face an enormous amount of pushback from others. So in other words, we would get Clarence Thomas's vote on this? 
Absolutely. No, but Thomas testified in his confirmation hearings in 1991 that he supported uh, class-based affirmative action. He thought that was a fair way of doing it. There, there's, there's much, you know, the, the legal standards are entirely different for uh, treating individuals differently based on race or class. I mean, we have, you know, hundreds of places in our public policy where we treat people differently based on their economic status. You know, starting with the progressive income tax, which has different marginal rates for different income groups. Uh, if you, so there's no legal problem with that. Uh, there is an enormous legal problem if you were to implement a system where, uh, you know, different racial groups had different marginal rates. That would be uh, almost surely struck down by the Supreme Court. I, 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 it's just ironic to me how, uh, you know, we were in the civil rights generation and uh, race is very, is very certain aspects of race are very salient to us. Uh, but what's been happening in, in the last, what's been happening increasingly is more awareness of being murdered while black. And I wonder how much, how much that uh, ties in with, uh, with uh, desirability in admissions or, or, or I, I mean, it, it, this is a whole different, this is a whole different world of, of perceptions in uh, some ways. Yeah, and, and uh, you know that. To be clear, that's that's where I tried to start off. Was race and class both matter in in American society? Uh, in and we're reminded that in the headlines every day. Uh, that um, and I think you know people of goodwill would would want to see appropriate remedies to uh, police violence against uh, black people. That's mm -hmm. important. The Supreme Court will, will, has never held, even when it was supporting affirmative action, they've never held that because there is racial discrimination in the country uh, that uh, racial preferences and admissions to college are therefore justified. That was thrown out back in Baki, you know, in 78. Uh, so I, I don't think there's any chance that that rationale would uh, would survive the, the Supreme Court. And so given that race does matter in society, that's, that's why I think it's important to find uh, socioeconomic factors that reflect uh, the realities of race. And uh, so to go back to the example of wealth, uh, it, it is no accident that you have a, a wealth gap on the order of eight or 10 to one between uh, white and black people in this country. That reflects the legacy of uh, enslavement, of, of segregation, of redlining, of Jim Crow. All of those things have, you know, wealth is handed down over generations. So all those things are, are incorporated into a, a wealth factor. And it's precisely because of, because race matters, precisely because of racial discrimination that uh, the class-based approach disproportionately benefits uh, black and Hispanic students. Ronnie. I'm thinking about a related issue or an issue I think is related, which is reparations. 
wouldn't some of the same criteria apply? Um, certainly in the case for reparations, Ta-Nehisi Coates uh, gave an airtight argument for discrimination against Blacks. But now in California, there's a reparations task force, and they're talking about giving billions to Blacks. It seems to be moving forward, but isn't that somewhat parallel in, in your point of view? Yes, it, I mean, it's, it's quite parallel. I, I think that um, you know, there are some, some challenges to that approach going forward. Uh, the biggest one is political because uh, you know, if, if you look at public opinion on reparations, it's right at the, you know, it's, it's probably below the level of uh, using race in admissions at colleges. So it's a very, very difficult uh, approach to take politically. Now, um, it'll be fascinating to see what happens in California because you have the, the task force that has made a very powerful case on behalf of recognizing the wrongs uh, that California and that the country has committed against black people. And you know, if, if through an education process, uh, we see change over time and, and the support tick up, um, that'll, be, that'll be interesting to see. I, I'm not holding my breath for that to happen, uh, given that the polling on reparations, especially cash reparations, has been uh, quite negative for, for, for decades, really. Uh, now, now, Dr. King uh, you know, wrote about this in his book, Why We Can't Wait, because he said, all right, we're, we're about to pass the 64 Civil Rights Act. Uh, that will deal with prospective discrimination. But we have a history that needs remedying, and uh, we need repair. And in the book, he ends up calling for a Bill of Rights for the disadvantaged, as opposed to a Bill of Rights for Black people. And the rationale was twofold. One is that he saw that politically, uh, a special Bill of Rights for Black people was never going to fly. The other insight was that um, racial discrimination, as troubling as it is, is not the only form of inequality in American society. And so he said it's, it's a matter of simple justice that, uh, that poor white people be included in that, uh, that effort to, to repair. So, so that's where he was. I mean, that was a long time ago. And if he'd lived, maybe he would have taken a very different view over time. But we do have that as, as another model for a politically palatable, uh, a more politically palatable form of, of repair. Marcy. Uh, it, the women who agitated for Harvard education in the 1800s didn't do it so that they could jump their class or, or 
be the only black CEO of Goldman Sachs. They did it because they were hungry for knowledge and, and seeking truth. Does anyone discuss values like that uh, in, in the discussions of uh, admissions policies now? Well, I think a lot of students continue to have that, that desire. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's shifted over time where the, the value that students say they place on professional advancement has increased over time. And some of what we might think of as, as kind of a, a more powerful rationale, a hunger for truth and knowledge uh, has, has declined, but certainly it's relevant for a lot of students who want a chance to go to a selected college, that they, they want that experience in order to, to learn and grow. Uh, so I, I think that remains an, an important aspect. And the, but whether the motivation of a student is to, uh, to seek the truth or to make more money or both, uh, that I don't think changes the calculus in terms of the public's view of whether race should count in admissions. Mm -hmm. Alden. Well, I'm, I'd be interested on some of this uh, data on polling on people wanting diversity. Uh, there are polls that you can ask and then there are things called voting with their feet. And uh, a lot of people have voted with their feet to make damn sure if they got to white suburbs. Um, so is there, good, is there good polling data that people really want uh, diverse uh, schools? Well, this was specifically about diverse colleges. Uh, so I, I do a lot of research on K through 12 institutions as well. And, and I would agree with you that the, uh, there is broad public support or the concept of making a school diverse. And then you ask a sub-question, uh, if that requires students to be transported to schools further away, uh, white, sport, white support for diversity evaporates. So, um, so I think that's a, a, that's a legitimate uh, point. I think in the college admissions context though, Given the fact that there's, there's a broad political consensus that it makes sense to consider the economic disadvantages that a student has overcome. You know, of course, if someone, you know, faced all sorts of, uh, you know, a tough environment and, and managed to be really impressive despite that, that's, that's an element of, of merit in the, in the view of a lot of people. So, um, so that's where I think I have confidence uh, that that public support will translate into, into action. Uh, universities will consider it unacceptable uh, to be, you know, to see Black and Hispanic numbers fall dramatically. Uh, they will will come up with with alternative uh, alternative methods. George. So I have a question for you, Rick, and for the other lawyers on in our group. Is equal protection the same as equal treatment? So, uh, I mean, I would say that it's, you know, you wanna treat difference 
people who are in different circumstances differently. Uh, so I don't think it requires, I mean, otherwise I'd be opposed to class-based affirmative action because that is treating people who are positioned differently <clears throat> in a different manner. But the, you know, uh, the, the Supreme Court has, has long held that that uh, position is not, um, is not likely to prevail in terms, of, in terms of race, unless you have you know, what they call a compelling justification. And racial diversity was a compelling justification in the past, like an exception to the rule that normally we're not gonna treat people of different races differently. Uh, so, so I would say the Supreme Court is reading the Equal Protection Clause with respect to race uh, to require that um, effectively equal treatment. Okay. Let's see. Kent, this is Doug. Can I ask a question now? Yeah, sure. Yeah, Doug. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, so my question concerns uh, the impact of uh, uh, increasing the representation of by color or by socioeconomic status or by religion on a campus. What impact does that have on the attitudes of the students as they're going through their college education? Or do black kids still prefer to sit with black kids at lunchtime? And uh, do uh, rich kids tend to associate more with other rich kids? Uh, if, you, if you look at, at, at families, you know, I think by and large, uh, children tend to grow up and adopt the religion of their parents. And I would guess that there's the same kind of effect in terms of uh, prejudices that they may grow up with the same kind of prejudices. And so then if they go into a school where everything is mixed, does that have a, a positive impact on their attitudes and their behavior or, you know, are there studies about that? Yes, there's, I mean, there's a, a broad uh, array of studies that <clears throat> overwhelmingly suggest there's a positive benefit with exposure to students of different different races, different classes, uh, you know the the best scenario was as Gordon Allport said many many years ago was if they're if students are coming in uh, on an equal level, and uh, and so I think at a you know once you're into a selective college that's um, I think that creates the the right conditions for the benefits of racial diversity. And, and that's why, you know, in my view, if the class alternative doesn't produce sufficient levels of racial diversity, uh, I think there are enormous benefits to having diversity on campus. And so I'd support uh, using race as a last resort. Well, how long do you wait before you make that determination that it hasn't worked out? Well, it depends on how the different, I mean, the Supreme Court has read it one way. My personal view would be that you would uh, see whether, like if, if Harvard said, there's no way we can get racial diversity without using race, and they still had legacy preference in place that was clearly uh, benefiting white students, then I'd say you haven't tried hard enough. Uh, so I'd like to see them go through a process where they exhaust 
the uh, you know what what they're referred to as race neutral alternatives, where they make a really good faith effort to to implement a number of changes, and then at the end of the day, if having done all of that, they no longer you know they still need to use race, then that's where I would support using race. Mm -hmm. uh, Richard Rothstein. You know, as uh, Rick knows, we've tangled over this issue for 20 years or more, maybe 30 at this point. Um, so I, don't, I, I deliberately wanted to not disrupt his presentation. Um, but let me say one thing that I think he ignores, and that is that um, we have enormous economic inequality in this country. And uh, the rich and the poor are growing more and more distant. Uh, the rich and the middle class are growing more and more distant. Uh, the statistic he cited about uh, uh, the test score gap, that's based on the very rich versus the very poor. The test score gap has not grown uh, between um, uh, people above the median income and people below the median income. Um, so we have enormous economic inequality. Uh, there's a difference between racial inequality and economic inequality. Economic inequality has been created by wrong headed, in my view, economic policies. Racial inequality has been created by unconstitutional actions of federal, state, and local governments, as well as illegal actions by the private sector. That's not the cause of economic inequality. So we, if we take our responsibilities as American citizens seriously under the Constitution, we have an obligation to remedy racial segregation and racial inequality in a way we do not have a constitutional obligation to remedy economic inequality. Now, um, there are many, many other points of disagreement that Rick and I have. Um, uh, I'm not gonna go into uh, any other of them at this point. I, I have, this is a, I told Kent, this is a weird coincidence that uh, Rick is on uh, today. I've actually written a, an article which is about to be published soon uh, critiquing Rick's view. <laughs> uh, I'm actually going to, I can't, I think I'll, I'll send this to you, a draft, my draft uh, after this is over, so you can assure everybody that I didn't use this session as a, a basis for uh, exploiting Rick's presence. Um, but I'll have a lot to say. As, as you may know, I've been, uh, uh, we'll, I'll be on this session again, and uh, I'll have a lot to say about that. But I didn't want to dis disrupt Rick's presentation by going on too long today. Well, I, I, I agree with you that there is a constitutional requirement to remedy racial discrimination in a way that there is not a constitutional requirement to remedy class discrimination. And we see class discrimination all the time. I mean, the, the, the zoning laws that say, uh, you know, we don't want you in this neighborhood if you can't afford a single family home on half an acre or more, that's, that's clear class discrimination that has a racial impact. And, and I agree with you, Richard, there, there's not a constitutional requirement uh, to remedy that. Uh, having said that, the, the, you know, the Equal Protection Clause is obviously a two-edged, double-edged sword. And so the fact that government can get away with uh, economic discrimination and is held to a lower standard is, is precisely why the Supreme Court is now acting or will likely act to, to strike down the, the use of race. And they've been very, uh, you know, they have a, a 
quite cramped reading of when you can use race to remedy racial discrimination. Um, it'll be fascinating to see, let's, let's say five years from now, the University of North Carolina comes back and says, okay, we lost on the question of whether we can use race to achieve racial diversity, uh, but what about the fact that we discriminated against black people for uh, generations? Uh, can that be used as a rationale for, uh, for using race and admissions in favor of the group that was discriminated against? Uh, I doubt that will fly with the Supreme Court, but that would be a different argument to kind of test this proposition that there's a, a um, you know, you, you can use race uh, in order to remedy the University of North, you know, a particular institution's uh, discrimination, because the idea that race can be used to address what the Supreme Court refers to as larger societal discrimination, uh, you know, lost a long time ago. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Well, well thank great. you all. It's been great questions. I really enjoyed the discussion. That's thank great. you. Okay, everybody. Bye. Bye. That was Professor Richard Kallenberg. He is a professorial lecturer of public policy and administration at George Washington University. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, which you can find on Apple and Spotify or from wherever you get your podcast. Our podcast also stream on WIOXradio.org every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.